what stumbling blocks would come, but woe to him to whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea, then he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard if your brother sins and rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. And the apostle said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a mustard seed, you'd say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. But which of you, having a slave, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down and eat? But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself, and serve me until I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Alright. So he deals with stumbling blocks. Um, he, and he says they'll, they're going to come. Which leads me to think, you know, don't be disillusioned when you don't find a perfect church. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's going to be stumbling blocks. There's going to be difficulties. And there's going to be people who do the wrong thing. But that is a terrible thing, especially when we bring about other people's downfall. To influence somebody else to stumble in sin and to be the cause of their spiritual failure is about the most serious thing we can do. You know, it's so serious that, you know, being drowned, being thrown in the sea with a uh, millstone as your necklace would be a better fate than, than this. You know, you don't want to hurt somebody else. You know, and he said you know, then that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Even one. So we're thinking about the seriousness of the impact we can have on other people's spiritual lives. So I thought a little bit about, okay, what does that mean in practice? How would you practically cause somebody to stumble? Tempt them. Into something that's wrong. So, how what what might you tempt them to do? I know that I think I like I think in like relationships, uh, tempting someone sexually with what they shouldn't be having. You know, it's you're not married, but yet thinking of like the seductress kind yes. of concept. That's, that's a big one that, and it's not necessarily you deliberately setting out to do that, but sometimes it happens anyways. And so you're not only hurting your life and cutting yourself off from God, but you may be cutting your friend off from God as well at the same time. Yeah, that's a good point. Good good illustration. What are others? Other ways to make somebody stumble? Is it going too far to think of like some of those passages that talk about I don't know if yielding is the right word, but to the person who has a weaker conscience and, like, encouraging them to do something that would cause them to feel like they've done something wrong. Okay. Yeah. I mean, even if you didn't think it was wrong. Yeah. I mean, you would certainly want them to respect their conscience, and if they try to influence them to do something they think is wrong would be would be a way of causing them to stumble. I would agree with that. Actually, teaching somebody something that's not what God says, so that they start like stop following God's true teaching and start doing something else. Yeah, false teachers are definitely causing people to stumble. Good. What else? 
having like a disregard for the things that God has, you know, said are important. Uh, I mean, whether it's not attending services and making it seem like it's not a big deal or, you know, that that kind of a thing or, you know, saying, oh, I didn't study my Bible this week, this month, this year, you know, that kind of Setting thing. a bad example. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. When you are not doing well, you may influence other people to follow your example. Yeah. What about... Um, Absolutely. Being unwilling to receive them back, being unwilling to to encourage them, to reattach yourself to them. Very good. What else? Those are all good ones. How about encouraging somebody maybe to watch a movie that is, you know, really bad, or even talking them into it, when maybe you say, well, you just look away in those scenes. Well, maybe they won't. Um, you know, what about complaining and causing other people to be discontent? Or carrying on an argument that provokes an angry response? Or asking somebody to cover for you, lie for you? Think about that. Or laughing at somebody, mocking them for doing the right thing. Uh, you know, enticing somebody to uh, join some gossip. Uh, boasting in a way that makes other people either envious or boastful. And you can go on. I mean, there's a lot of ways that we impact each other and and can ha- cause somebody to stumble. So this is something to reflect on, I think, and just to have a sense of responsibility. You know, other people who are being influenced by me in one way or another and are caused to, to sin or, or be discouraged or whatever spiritually, that's back on me, and that's a serious matter. So that's something to think about in one and two. And then look at three. Be on your guard if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now, again, what do you know from this? There are going to be problems between brethren. But Christians ought to have the courage to deal forthrightly with each other. You know, it's a lot easier to talk to your best friend than to talk to someone you had a problem with. And we ought to be able to rebuke each other and not have to walk on eggshells around each other. Um... So you go to the brother you have the problem with, not to somebody else, and you rebuke them. And the purpose is to bring them back to the Lord, to get them to repent. Now, when they do repent, you're to forgive them. You know, and it's just he just says it. Now, he said, if he sins against you seven times a day, and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Now, that is a bit radical, don't you think? I mean, you have to kind of think, what in the world would somebody do against you that he could do seven times in a day? Got anything in mind? It doesn't say that it's the same <laughs> sin. Though. Well, what, what do you think, what kinds of things are you thinking about? Well, he stole my dog and then he lied to me about it. And, I, mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I, you think of David and Bathsheba and how that one weakness yeah. led to all these other... Though it wasn't something where they repented each time in between. <clears throat> yeah. You know, I thought about this. I don't know. I mean, this obviously is made up, but it, it helps you kind of think about what what would the situation be. What if somebody is uh, bad-mouthing you to somebody that's important? 
you know, they, they run you down to somebody, your best friend or, you know, somebody that, I mean, maybe, I, I can think of like, what if you got two guys that like the same girl? And one of the guys starts talking bad about the other guy and then feels bad and comes and tells him, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. And then he goes and does it again. And seven times in a day, he tells this girl something, you know, lies about the guy that, the other guy who wants her. And then each time he says, he's, he's sorry. I mean, what would we tend to think after a while? Exactly. This repentance is not genuine. But that's really not our business. You know, our business is to forgive. Uh, you know, if it's not genuine, it's not genuine. You know, you think about it. Have you ever asked God to forgive you for the same thing more than once in a day? I have. You know? So, I mean, do we think God's going to forgive us? You know, those of us who've received so much forgiveness ought to be generous in forgiving. Um, now, I mean, you have to appreciate the fact this guy promptly repented and went to the guy and confessed it. You know, I mean, that's saying something. Um, but, but you know, the fact is, God wants us to forgive. And the disciples, when they hear this, they're like, increase our faith. <laughs> you know, can you see why they said that? You're like, wow, we're going to have a lot more faith to be able to do this. This is, uh, this is just a real severe test. And Jesus said, well, listen, if you had faith like a mustard seed, remember what a mustard seed's claim to fame was? Smallest seed. Teensy tiny. If you had just a little wee bit of faith, you'd be able to see the, you'd say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. What? You know, so what's Jesus saying by that? I mean, he's saying, I think, the problem isn't the size of your faith. <coughs> Just a wee bit of faith, you could uproot the mulberry tree. You know, uh, and the mulberry tree is a tree that had proverbially strong roots. So uprooting that tree would take, uh, would be quite a trick. Now, Jesus is not wanting to spend our t- time watching trees leap into the sea. That's really not the point. The point is, you know, you could do some great thing with just a little bit of faith. So, it's not really faith that's the issue here. What's the issue? He said, well, listen, you got a slave, works hard all day on the farm, then he comes in, do you see, oh, please come here and sit down and eat. No, you say, hey, get something for me to eat, get, get yourself, you know, changed and serve me, and then when you get done, then you can do what you need to do for yourself. And do you say, Oh, slave, thank you so much for doing this. He's a slave. That's what he's uh, got bought for, you know? And so, you know, it just, it's just obedience. You just do what it says, you know? And so I think he's saying that forgiving like this is not a matter of faith. It's a matter of doing what he said, you know? I mean, that's, he said forgive him. Because God forgave us, so we forgive Him. Uh, so faith is not the issue. It wouldn't take much faith to even move a mulberry tree into the spine of the sea, uh, however that would work. Uh, the issue is obedience. The issue is just I told you to do it, do it. And I mean, some things are more that way than we think they are. I mean, you would think something like forgiveness is kind of a personal, emotional thing that you can't command. You know, I mean, some things, yeah, you can just do it. But, but we think of forgiveness, I'm like, well, you know, I mean, I can't just, I can't just forgive somebody. I mean, how could I do that? You know, I, mean, I don't feel like it. I don't, well, 
apparently he thinks it's commandable. <laughs> you know, so I just treat him right. You know, however I feel or whatever emotions I'm experiencing. Thoughts and comments on all that. What would that look like? Command. What would commanded forgiveness look like? You don't. Um, you don't carry hard feelings. You don't nurse bitterness or resentment. You don't talk bad about him. You don't try to hurt him or get him back. That kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But you, well, would you have to have a charitable feeling towards that person, or just not do them? I, just not do them harm, so to speak. Well, I'm not so concerned about the feeling, depending on what we mean by the feeling. Yeah. But I think you treat them right, and you don't hold a grudge, you're not bitter, you're not trying to hurt them, you're not hoping they die, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, I understand that, wow, obviously you're dealing with a lot of things in the Bible, and we're dealing with a multitude of situations. So, there are consequences to some sins that are appropriate consequences that are not necessarily uh, something that's not a matter of forgiveness. So, if somebody, you know, um, is stealing from you, is it appropriate for you to put your money away? (laughs) You know, is it appropriate for you to uh, watch the person when they're at your house? Or maybe invite them not to come? In some cases, I think yes. I mean, God did God forgive David? But were there consequences? Did God forgive Moses? But could he go into the promised land? So I'm not saying that there's never... You know, there might even be some time where we would need to warn other people about the danger that someone presents. Um, there might be some times that we need to insist that the person go to other people that could help them overcome their problem. You know, there's a time that you don't just sweep everything under the rug because of your concern for the person. The thing we got to watch, though, are we doing that because we're not wanting to forgive and wanting to take vengeance, or are we really concerned about doing what's right in the situation? So we're dealing with a rather broad area, and... <laughs> You know, there are, there are things that may have to be changed even though someone's forgiven. What, what if, what if uh, an elder committed some gross impropriety? Would it perhaps not be appropriate for them to continue to serve as an elder? Yeah, I think so. You know, uh, that could, that could happen. Um, would there perhaps be a time that somebody, um, runs around on their mate and though their mate forgives them, they still divorce them? I've known that had to happen. You know, I, I was in, years and years ago, I was in, involved in, in working with the situation where uh, the man had run around on her three times with three different women. And she told him, if you do it again, I'll divorce you. He did it again. He lied to cover it up. When it was finally had no other choice, he admitted it, asked for forgiveness. I believe she forgave him, but she didn't take him back. Everybody I knew, including the elders of the church, supported her strongly in doing that. You know... I, I, you, not, not every time does forgiveness mean there are no consequences that must be suffered. But, there's no malice, there's no desire to get revenge or retaliate, things like that. I would assume it doesn't mean that you don't feel hurt 
sometimes or sad or upset. Or, or maybe traumatized. <laughs> okay, yeah. I mean, depending on what it is. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, there's situations where it may even be, uh, without a lack of forgiveness, uh, may still be difficult to even be around the person in some situations, depending on what kind of advantage they've taken and how personal that is and so forth. Yeah, I wonder if we connect forgiveness to a feeling too much. Like, you don't want to forgive someone until you feel good about them again. But from what the Bible says about forgiveness, that doesn't make much sense because that would be like somebody like really hurting you and you being like, oh, I'm not allowed to like feel hurt. We're like best friends again. Yes, exactly. And that doesn't make any sense. Right. There are some things that are hurtful. Right. And there are some things that while I'm not, I don't hold malice toward the person, there are scars and consequences that I'm going to suffer. <clears throat> you realize, you know, you deal with just all these kinds of situations, but you deal with children who've been you know, abandoned or or abused or hurt badly by, you know, the adults responsible for them. And, I mean, there's no way that doesn't leave a scar. They don't have to be malicious. They can forgive that person and treat them right. That's not going to make them trust them again or whatever. I think you can see that with a parent-child relationship a lot. I mean, I'm sure there's been... Seven times in a day when Calvin's disobeyed me and I've had to spank him. And seven times he said he's sorry. Um, and, you know, I might be exasperated at the end of that and not really surprised when the eighth time comes <laughs> along. But, I mean, you know, I still love him. That relationship is absolutely still there. It's, I mean, it's two different things yes. going on. You know? No, that's a great illustration. I agree, absolutely. And I certainly did that with Kyle. Sometimes seven times in an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but but yeah, I mean, you you continue to forgive. I I didn't I didn't you know I didn't seek to continue punishing him until he did it again. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I think there were times that he was sincere in his repentance, and the temptation just got better of him again. <laughs> Which it makes it kind of comforting for thinking about God, I guess. Yeah, like you kind of mentioned. I remember Andy Cantrell talking about that and like calculating out like how many times a minute, you, like how many how many minutes you would be between seventy times seven is what he was using right. of like how many times you'd come back to this person, but that God wouldn't ask you to do something that He isn't going to do Himself. Amen. Like. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is comforting. I need to ask a tangential question if we're done with this. Feel free. We like tangents. So it's not. It's not really the point of this passage, but this kind of thing comes up all the time if I read with someone from work, like someone with a very different perspective than I have. And it's about the um, like the servant or the slave, and they'll be like, how, like, why is Jesus talking about slaves? Like, slavery is, you know, really awful, and, like, they'll get so distracted from the point of the parable <laughs> Because they're talking about, oh, you know, Jesus is endorsing slavery here. Well, he's really using slavery. I mean, I think in a passage like this, he's not really endorsing or not endorsing. I mean, he. what did we study in chapter 16? The unrighteous steward that fleeced his master. I don't think he was endorsing that. He was just using it as an mm-hmm. illustration. So here I'm not even sure he's saying anything positive about slavery. Now, I do think he doesn't uh, try to abolish slavery as an economic system. And, you know, you might think about it some other ways. I mean, does he tell masters to treat their slaves 
correctly in general. Yes, he does. So he's commanding, you know, kind, you know, economic system of slavery. You know, we have slavery in this country. We just don't call it that. What about military mm-hmm. service? About what? Military service. I mean, when you're in the military and they tell you to go somewhere, do you have a choice? When they tell you to do something, do you have a choice? Drop and give me 20, private. You don't have a choice. That's right. So, I mean, we think, I realize it's not the same, and it's kind of a voluntary slavery, although many times people, you know, sold themselves into slavery or whatever. Um, so, so I mean, we're not, we're, it's not like there's nothing like that that we even have, and we understand that as being okay. You know, so their economic system of slavery was not necessarily something that Jesus had to oppose. Um, not that there isn't some good in not having slavery. Now, one thing I would also say, if you're talking about American slavery, American slavery is based on kidnapping. And that's clearly opposed in the Bible, both Old and New Testament. So the kidnapping that started American slavery was very wrong. And certainly, you know, harsh masters and all that was always opposed. So there's just a lot to all that. Good question. Yeah, that's helpful. Okay. If you can get them to see it as uh, which of you having an employee... Mm-hmm. And the manager comes in and says, "Yeah, you know, I mean, you get kind of the same point. It's nice that the manager thanks you for doing a good job at the end of the day, or you know that a customer says, oh, thanks for going the extra mile.' But it's at the same time you're like, well, actually that wasn't the extra mile. That's just what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> well, those are the expectations that I'm that I'm supposed to do. It's not." I love you, you're a wonderful customer, but I didn't do it just because I love you and you're a wonderful customer. Yeah, and Guy Crowder at church, I mean, he's got one more year before he's a real total doctor. And he's doing, he's doing 24 hour shifts, seven in the morning at, on Saturday morning, seven in the morning on Sunday morning, and then coming to church. And he has no choice. He doesn't have an option. He has to do the 24 hours. He's done a bunch of like 16 on eight off, 16 on eight off kind of stuff, and you know, things like that that are just, he's a doctor. He actually is a doctor, but he's he's required to do all that kind of stuff. It doesn't miss slavery very far, it looks to me like. So, we have a little bit more like that than we think we do sometimes. All right, well, how about uh, 11 to 19? One more question. Oh, What's sure. When he says, causes one of these little ones, where does he come up with that, or who's he talking about, and why refer to it that way? Well, I think he means a disciple, um, but why he says one of these little ones? Uh, it's not related back to anything. I mean, he said to his disciples, <clears throat> so I assume he's talking to the disciples about the disciples. When he says something similar over in Matthew, mm-hmm. it, it the context is they were bringing the little kids, right? Or is, do I have that wrong? Well, I don't know. Is it true? Um, yeah, you got like a Matthew eighteen six. Whoever will cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. So I think he's using an analogy from the children to talk about his disciples because clearly, if you're talking about babies, they don't believe in him, or then they don't stumble. So I think little ones normally in the Bible is talking about disciples. 
Okay. 11 and 19. <clears throat> While traveling to Jerusalem, he passed between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten men with leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he told them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And while they were going, they were cleansed. But one of them, seeing that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice gave glory to God. He fell face down at his feet, thanking him, and he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus said, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Didn't any return to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he told him, Get up and go on your way. Your faith has saved you. Well, that kind of stinks. You know, you got these ten lepers that Jesus is approached by. They say, have mercy on us. And Jesus says, go and show yourself to the priest. And it looks to me like on the trip to the priest, they were suddenly healed. Not necessarily while they were right there with Jesus. And one of them, there were ten, one of them, when he saw he'd been healed, turned back glorifying God and giving thanks to Jesus. She seems to me to be implying that Jesus and God are the same entity there. Um, but the question is, why not the others? You know, weren't there ten clans, where are the nine? You know, only one returned to give glory to God? Um, so, you know, majorities impress us too much, don't they? You know, a lot of times, those who really are what they ought to be are the minority. And... You know, you wonder what did the nine think anyway? They're excited about being clean and eager to get to the priest so they can get back to their families or whatever. You know, yeah, that's that's kind of like wow. It's kind of greedily suck up the blessing and don't bother to say thank you. You know, uh, kind of ingratitude. But then again. How many times have we really asked God for something in prayer, and as soon as we get it, we get all excited, we got it, but we forget to thank Him, even for a few minutes or maybe definitively? You know, I mean, you know, shouldn't it be that when God blesses us, you know, He never hears the end of it? <laughs> you know, we just keep thanking Him, praising Him. You know, um, I, I don't know. I think, I think. We're a lot like this. You know, we enjoy the blessing. We don't thank God for it. And I think seeing these guys makes you realize how ugly ingratitude is. This is just really this is a lack of proper etiquette. <laughs> you know, they don't have good manners. But it's more deep than that, obviously. Failure to be thankful is, is a sin. And, uh, you know, how many times do we, do we put our, our, you know, discomforts on a pedestal and hide our blessings under a bushel. And don't even think about them, much less thank God for them. You know, we, uh, I thought about this a lot at camp when we were praying a lot to get the campground. And then, you know, I tried to be more conscious of continuing to pray to thank God that we got it. So much easier to pray to request than it is to pray to thank. You know, and it's just really important for us to to be grateful. The other thing that's interesting is he makes mention of the fact that the one person who returned to give thanks was a Samaritan. Now, you know, I mean, he was going between Galilee and Samaria, so I guess, you know, it's not improbable that one of them would have been a Samaritan. But he specifically says that. Um, and... 
you know, why does he draw attention to that? Well, I think he's challenging their stereotype notion that Samaritans are no count, you know, worthless, godless people. And, you know, Jesus is, you know, Luke here is just kind of putting it on our face that the guy who came back and thank God, he was the Samaritan. I mean, it reminds you of Jesus telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. That was a parable, so it could have made him anything. You know, it could have made him the priest, not the Levite and the Samaritan. But he made him the Samaritan because he's trying to teach the point, trying to overcome the racial stereotyping and prejudice and so forth. And, uh, you know, so, and Jesus draws attention to the fact that it was only this foreigner. Of all things, it wasn't a Jew. It was this foreigner, it was a Samaritan that really has true gratitude. So Jesus was, uh, certainly not above trying to bunk their prejudices, debunk their prejudices. Thoughts and comments? Do you think that this is, this may be taking it in a way that's not meant to be taken, but that we can learn something about service from Jesus, that we may do something good nine times over and not get noticed, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing the good things? Hmm. And Jesus cared about them and healed them, even though I suppose he knew what they were going to do. Yes, it's in the Sermon mm-hmm. on the Mount where he says, just do something not to be noticed. Right, God sends his rain on the just and the unjust, so if we're like God, we bless all men. Other thoughts? Seems to be several times where he uses the foreigner, you know, to talk about. I mean, I guess just to make the point to the Jews, the ones that he's talking to, you know, like the widow that her son was raised, and like Naaman, you know, he uses both of those examples. Right, right, right. There were plenty of lepers in Israel, but he, you know, God didn't wasn't contained by that um, or limited to that. I guess in the one situation, you know, the one where he mentions both of those, he's talking to his hometown and they were expecting special treatment. So I think he uses that every time. It's like, here's another situation. I know you guys are expecting special treatment and here's the one that's showing the great faith, or again, the centurion that showed that there's no faith like that in Israel. (laughs) So right. over and over, I guess trying to stress that, it, it appears to me anyway. I agree. Humbling Jewish pride and self-righteousness. Yeah, that's exactly right. Good good way to look at that. Because you're right, he does that pretty often. Other thoughts? Well, uh, 20 and 21. Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And this begins a section of dealing with the coming of the Lord, the kingdom of God. Here it's the, when the kingdom of God was coming. And a bit difficult all the way through here to be sure we know what he's talking about. And it's pretty debatable. Uh, at least it's pretty debated. Uh, and when they ask about that, he said the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. So, I mean, you think about a lot of kingdoms that might come with, you know, a military conquest or with the band or the troops marching or some kind of pomp and circumstance. He's saying it's not going to come like that. 
Well, how is it going to come? And they're going to say, they're not going to, they're not going to say, look, here it is, no, there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And the marginal note says, within you. Which leads to two different understandings of that verse. Does he mean this is just an internal spiritual kingdom? So it's like Jesus reigning over our spirit and our heart. That's the kind of kingdom it was. A lot of the the ancient church, what we call fathers, understood the passage that way. Or is it saying that the kingdom was present among them since Jesus is the king? And, you know, he's saying, I'm among you as your king. He doesn't normally speak of the kingdom being in you, but you being in the kingdom. So you've got kind of that question mark on that first interpretation. I'm not sure, you know, between those two. I think if I had to guess right now, I'd guess the second one. But I can see an argument both ways. So that leads, that starts me off kind of uncertain as to what he's saying right there. Do you have questions and comments about that? Do you have an answer to that? Alright, well, he's going to talk then about the coming of the Son of Man, and we'll see some aspects of that. Let's start with 22 to 29, 22 to 30. Then he said to the disciples, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look here, or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by his generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be... So it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Okay, so he's talking about some aspects of the coming of the Son of Man and the days of the Son of Man. And there's probably among brethren, at least, two main views of this whole passage from 22 to 37. Some people think he's talking about Jesus coming figuratively to destroy Jerusalem. And some people think he's talking about what we call the second coming of Christ. I'm in that second group. I think he's talking about the second coming. Uh, he says it'll be obvious. You know, you're not going to have to go somewhere, you know, look someplace for Jesus. It's going to be like the lightning. You know, you see it from everywhere. You know, that's the way it's going to be. It's going to be unmistakable. It's going to be universal. You're going to have to go looking for Jesus when he comes back. You'll see him. So don't be hoodwinked by false sightings of Jesus. Or small sightings of the Messiah. But first, before he's coming back, there's this uh, suffering many things and being rejected. I mean, there's a procedure and uh, the, the suffering before the glory. And then he says the coming of his return will be in an ordinary time. Like the world of the flood, like Sodom and Gomorrah. 
where everything's going on, kind of business as usual, no major crisis. Everybody's kind of relaxed and unconcerned. And suddenly, the flood came. Suddenly, the fire and brimstone rained down. You know, it's the, the, the coming of Jesus is going to be at a normal time, and there's not going to be some warning shots fired across the bow, bow, to, bow to alert people. You know, it's not going to be something like, you know, the thief sending a warning postcard. You know, it's going to be, he's just going to come suddenly. And everything was going along normally. You know, people are always like trying to come up with signs of Jesus' return. Like, oh, look at this. Look at that. Look, you can tell it's, it's going to be closed. See what this happened. See this happened. See this happened. Well, I think the Bible teaching is, no, it's not going to be like that. You know, it's more likely to come in a time when nothing important's happening. When everybody's going to be lulled to sleep because everything's just going along normally. And it can be sudden. I mean, that's the thing for all of us. I realize we could die suddenly. But there's another factor in this. Jesus could come back at any moment and suddenly and at a time we have least expected. Um, so I think he's saying that he will return, second coming, and it'll be obvious. Everybody will see him. And it'll be an ordinary time when it's totally unexpected. Thoughts and comments on that? just an interesting thing I just noticed at least I think it's interesting a word like that verse 27 it says Noah entered the ark on the day that Noah entered the ark and then in verse 29 it's talk about on the day that Lot went out from Sodom so Noah went in to be saved Lot went out to be okay. saved just a very nice literary item there that may or may not have any meaning other than God can save whether you're in or out <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll remember that. As long as you're in the right out and in that you should be. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't use the word, but both of them rained. Lot, Noah went in and it rained. Oh, very nice. And Lot went out and it rained. I guess it did. I hadn't thought about that either. Mm-hmm. Right? Other thoughts? Yeah, that's, uh, I haven't seen either of those. So... The day that the Son of Man is revealed, I guess it's going to rain. Probably in this case, perhaps fire, as it did in Sodom and Gomorrah's case, and not the water, but, uh, yeah. Good point. Now, the hard part of this is the next verse. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. Likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. It's like, uh, well, how would you even do that when Jesus comes back? You won't have time. So that's, that's an objection to my understanding. I think the next verse helps. Remember Lot's wife. Lot's wife was, you know, tied too closely to Sodom and to the world. And that if we're going to be ready for Jesus' return, we've got to have an attitude of not trying to clutch or cling to the things of this life. You know, we can't love the world and still be ready for Jesus to come back. Like he says in verse 33, whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. So we've got to have the anti-Lot's wife perspective, not seeking to cling and clutch and stay with these earthly possessions and wanting our life here, but ready to relinquish anything, not looking back, not cherishing the things of the world, willing to devote our life and lose our life for the Lord, not having this worldly materialistic thing. 
So I think he's talking about the proper attitude we need to have for him to, to receive us when he comes back. But that is clearly the most challenging part of this passage on my interpretation. Anybody want to say anything about that? I mean, the other thing, it could just be a judgment in general, like we see a lot of in Revelation of Christ coming to judge rather than you know, the second coming, which I think fits better with the kingdom of God because the question was, you know, when's the kingdom coming, not the final... I don't know if they understood what they were asking. And the kingdom comes many times in many ways. Yeah. Right, and so does judgment. That's right. In many times in many ways. Right. So, and they all look similar. (laughs) <laughs> right. That's exactly right. They do. Um, to, so, yeah, I mean, there is definitely a similar shape to every judgment, both the judgments in time and the final judgment. That's right. one of the challenges of defining those things. It's just, the, then the difficulty with that is like it being as obvious as lightning, because not all of those judgments are that obvious, I don't think. Right. But but then again, Revelation uses that a lot, like it's very obvious when it's specific things. So, you got lots of things to think about in this passage, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, I would not be dogmatic. I'm, I'm a little not impressed by the tendency to see the destruction of Jerusalem specifically everywhere in the Bible. Right. Um, <laughs> That seems to be our tendency at the moment in some circles, and I'm just not sure it's right. there as much as people Of course, think. it was a judgment, so it would have similar... Right, exactly. ...as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, all of them are similar. But for Jesus to be talking that much about the destruction of Jerusalem specifically, I'm not, I'm not as convinced of. But you can think about all that, and we'll work on this some more next week if you want to, since our time's up, and we'll finish out the passage. And, uh, but...